Thank you, Pastor Chad. Thank you for the evangelistic element of your message, your prayer this morning. It seems hard to believe that uh, on a cold January morning, in fact, it was the first Sunday morning of January 2014. I ask you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. And we embarked upon this journey, this spiritual journey of exploring the history of the early church and focusing upon the lives of those early apostles, Peter and James, John, and here more recently, the Apostle Paul. And here we are at chapter 28, about to conclude this exciting uh, journey of faith. And so you can turn there in, in Acts chapter 28. And as you do, I want to share with you some words that helps to set the tone for the message this morning as we conclude this wonderful chapter, or wonderful book of the history of the church. You may recall earlier in Paul's missionary journey, it was probably his second missionary journey when Paul was in Corinth, and Paul was writing from Corinth to the church at Rome. There were Christians in Rome, though Paul had never gone himself. There were believers in Rome, and Paul was writing to them And in doing so, he was expressing his intentions, his desires to come to be with them. In chapter 1 of Romans, in verse 11, he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. And then in verse 15 of that same chapter, Paul went on to say to those Roman Christians, So as much as in me, I am ready to go to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And we know that earlier... A few chapters earlier that Jesus had appeared to the Apostle Paul and made it clear to him that he was going to go to Rome and there he would witness on the uh, behalf of the Lord in the gospel in Rome just as he did in Jerusalem. And so quickly recap and so we can catch yourself up to date real quickly here in chapter 28. But in the previous message you may may recall after languishing for uh, two years in, a, in a, a, a house arrest situation in Caesarea, the Apostle Paul was finally, after appealing to Caesar, was loaded on a ship with the uh, Roman centurion and guards along with other prisoners. He's accompanied by Luke, the writer of the book of Acts. He's also accompanied by another fellow believer, Aristarchus, and they launch on this, this journey towards Rome. But you know as well as I do that along the way they encountered a horrific northeastern storm that blew the ship off, off, uh, off uh, course and they were like a cork out in the ocean in the middle of the Mediterranean uh, where for two solid uh, weeks Without seeing the stars, without seeing the sky, they were lost at sea, if you will, in one of the worst storms probably any of them had ever seen. And and God providentially is speaking to Paul and reassuring him that not only uh, is he going to survive, but everybody on the ship is going to survive. But he does make it clear that they will have a shipwreck. And Paul almost begins to assume command of the ship as God is providentially speaking to him and working through him because the rest of the ship, including the the sailors and and the soldiers, have all lost hope. And Paul says, stay on the ship. We are going to have a shipwreck. We are going to run aground, but you will survive. And sure enough, they did. And as we concluded in chapter 27, we saw that the ship ran aground into a reef The front of the ship lodged. The rest of the ship was totally demolished. And everyone, all 276 passengers, prisoners, soldiers, sailors, 
everyone, just as God had told Paul, made it to shore alive. And so as we pick up in this last chapter, in chapter 28, we find, that I'll tell you, I, I have to confess, this is the flesh. I was so tempted to maybe begin the message by singing the, the little jingle to Gilligan's Island, you know. Just sit right back and you hear a song, a song of a faithful trip. But I re- resisted. But here they are, shipwrecked, out in the middle of the Mediterranean, on an island that they didn't know uh, it, probably anything about until they found out from the, re- the, the, a, the, um, uh, the people who lived there, the natives, that it was the island of Malta. Now, just as a footnote, if you were to go to the Mediterranean, sounds like a good vacation idea, right? And if you were to make your way to the island of Malta, and there you were going to vacation, to this day you'll find a place there by the shore called St. Paul's Bay. And it's the exact place marked where Paul and his uh, shipmates wrecked and came ashore. So you can go visit St. Paul's Bay on one of those Mediterranean cruises as you uh, venture out there. So now we pick up after they're two months into the journey. To Rome, but instead of being in Rome, they're on an island, uh, ships demolished, and they're at the mercy of the natives. But I want you to understand, just as Luke brings out so vividly in the text, God's providence doesn't stop just because they found themselves to the island. God providentially cared for Paul, protected Paul, and because God was providentially protecting his servant, he protected everybody else on that ship. That's just the nature of God. You know, being around fellow believers, uh, you know, is, is beneficial. And if we had lost people in our midst, I'd say, listen, hang out with Christians. Because the fallout is good. You can benefit just by being in the presence of God's people. And certainly everybody on that ship did. And so now as we look here at uh, chapter 28, you'll see the providence of God still working even in their shipwreck situation And so I want us, first of all, to be looking in chapter 28, verses 1 through 6, as Paul's miracles exhibit the power of great and grace of God on this island. Also, it it exhibits the providential protection of God over the apostle Paul. So look with me in verse 1, chapter 28. And when they had escaped, that is from the shipwreck, they then found themselves, or they then found... Uh, found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness. That's the providence of God, moving in the hearts of the natives. They could have been uh, hostile. They could have tried to kill them all. But instead, they showed unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. And it was in the fall of the year. and It was raining. The storm was still going on. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper, a snake, came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Probably it was being a cold-blooded creature. It was in some state of dormancy in, in the sticks. And when the heat of the fire woke it up, it latched onto Paul's hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice, in other words, one of our gods, does not allow him to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up and suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked 
for a long time, I can just imagine them all gawking and staring at Paul and watching and thinking, okay, any minute, any minute, he's going down. It's kind of like when we were over in Africa on a missions trip and we went out on a safari and some of the, the native guides that were uh, driving the van, they were telling us about a snake over there called the black mamba. And they said it's the deadliest snake in the world. And said the fact that the, the, the understanding is among the natives is if you're out and you get bitten by one of the black mambas, you don't even bother going to look for a doctor because you're not going to make it. It's that fast. In fact, we were out on the safari and, and one of the vans ahead of us came up on a black mamba that was out in the tall grass. And I will tell you something, that van driver put that van in reverse. It was driving as fast as he could because the snake was chasing the van. That's how aggressive. So anyway, some of these snakes, I know some of you have snake phobia and I apologize. You'll probably have the heebie-jeebies for the rest of the message. But bear with me, there's a good end into this. And so they're watching as Paul, you know, is there. They're expecting him to just fall over dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said, he was a God. He, he was, isn't it amazing? Look at the contrast. Just in a few verses, on one hand, they're saying, oh, this guy's got to be a murderer. You know, a snake like this one. And you know, it's interesting that, that liberal critics of the scriptures will take something like this and they say, well... This shows that the Bible's inaccurate because today everybody knows that there are no poisonous snakes, no venomous snakes on the island of Malta. Well, granted, that may be true. There may not be poisonous snakes on the island of Malta. But might I remind you, this was 2,000 years ago. And once a small island is populated with modern civilization or whatever, you can get rid of poisonous snakes. So that's not a far-fetched you know, reason in there. And that's probably what has happened. Uh, how do we know this snake was poisonous? Because the people who were the experts, the people who lived on the island, were the ones that saw it. They know a poisonous snake. You know, I grew up on a farm, and we were schooled in different snakes to you know, handle. In fact, I, I was a snake handler when I was a little boy, and I used to be fascinated with snakes. I'd catch green snakes and black snakes, but I knew I didn't pick up copperheads or water moccasins because that I was taught the difference. So here's this, this thing that's happening, but I want you to see the providence of God is still at work as He protects Paul and, and those who are with, with Him uh, because... Uh, God has given the natives the feeling of, of mercy towards them and, and showing kindness. And they build a fire to help them to be warm. And this incident with the snake, I think it's interesting because there are some overzealous Bible students who will take this passage right out of context. And they'll try to stick it with Mark 16, that very mysterious ending to the Gospel of Mark. Where, you know, the writer Mark says, uh, in that day you will, they will pick up snakes, uh, poisonous snakes, and they'll drink poison. And, and so, therefore, they'll look at this incident and they'll use that passage and they'll say, well, if you are truly a believer and you have faith, brother, you know, pick up the serpent, you know. And, you, and, and, and I might point out that many of them have died painful deaths. So, I'm like Wendy Bagwell when he was talking about them singing in one of those snake handling churches. You know, one of the, one of the preachers there asked him when he backed off from looking at the snake, said, Brother, don't you believe that, you know, you can handle this, that God's called you to handle the snake? And Wendy said, he said, no, he didn't and I ain't. <laughs> so, that's me. Okay? 
So, but, but what does this incident tell us about the providence of God, that God is working through this incident to demonstrate to the natives and to those around Paul that Paul is a man of God. He's God's chosen vessel. God's got a plan for him. And, and we'll see that unfold as we move further there. God is working providentially in the events of Paul's life to accomplish his mission, and that is to bring him to Rome, where he will testify faithfully of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, it was Paul that wrote in that same book that I was just reading from in Romans. He wrote in at that uh, Romans chapter 8, verse, verse 28. Paul says, For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. Let me tell you something. I submit for your consideration this morning the very life of the Apostle Paul is a, is a testimony to that verse. Because Paul knew that, hey, listen, just because you choose to follow God doesn't mean everything is going to be good. Everything is going to be pleasant. Everything is going to be pleasurable. Listen, following God involves pain. There are wonderful moments. There are high moments of celebration. There are many blessings. But listen, in the midst of our lives, as we follow God, there will be those trials, those hardships and tribulations that will come our way. But the key is, are you serving the Lord? Do you love God? Because God will take the whole conglomeration of all the things that He allows to happen in your life, and ultimately He will work good out of it. But the key is, do you love the Lord? Are you trusting in Him? And that's the key to Paul's life. Paul was absolutely trusting in the Lord. But we see God's providence continue to work to bless others around Paul, even as we move further in verse 7, if you look there. Now in that region there was a, an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius. This is probably someone who was appointed by the Roman Empire to be the leader of the nation. And, and Luke says, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. I guess Publius had gotten the word that, hey, did you know we got a God walking around us here? He was bitten by a very poisonous snake, and so he's a very prominent person. So they invite Paul and Luke. We don't know if they, that, that Publius invited everybody on the ship. It may have been just Paul and his friends. But the fact is, this leader of the, of the island nation, if you will, invited them in and received them and entertained them and showed them courtesy for three days. But look at verse 8. And it happened that the father of Publius laid sick of a fever and dysentery. He was a very sick man. Paul went in to him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. And they also honored us in many ways. And when they, we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. God was working providentially to benefit not only Paul, but to benefit even the people of that island. And Paul demonstrated the powerful healing mercies of God in a way that they'd never seen. And everybody was bringing their sick. And Paul was humbly calling upon God and they were being healed, including the father of this host that had Paul and his guests there. You see, God is working in the lives of those around us. As God puts us in context to minister to other people, you see, they can benefit from the very presence of God in our lives. But you see, God was also working providentially to provide for Paul and for those who accompanied him. Because look at verse 10. Not only did he entertain them and care for them, but as they got ready to make their journey on to Rome, they supplied them with all the things they needed that they would take with them to make the, the, the trip on to Rome. 
And so now we move, as we go into verse 11 in chapter 28, we see Paul finally, after two months, having left Caesarea two months earlier, after waiting so long when the Lord told him that he was going to go to Rome, Paul is finally on his way to Rome, the destination he's looked forward to. I don't know if any of you have been traveling and you've gotten waylaid by by uh, layovers and airports and, and uh, flights being canceled or being laid or whatever, and you maybe been away from home for a long time, and this is no reflection on any airline, Mark. This is just things that happen, okay? It can, trains have layovers, I guess, and bus stations. So anyway, but anyway, if you, you're longing to get to a destination and you're being you know, uh, held back and, 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 and delayed, uh, your heart just yearns. Just imagine the yearning in Paul's heart. So in verse 11, after three months we sailed in an Alexandrian ship and this was probably one of those grain, large grain ships coming from northern Africa on the way to, to Rome to take uh, the grain for the supply of the, of the Roman Empire and, and now the Roman uh, centurion has gotten passage for all of his passengers on this ship now and, and, and Luke is so meticulous in his details. He said, well, on this ship was the figurehead, the twin brothers. Do you remember some of those ancient uh, sailing vessels? They had used some, some kind of a creature's head on the front of it, you know, to possibly appease the gods of the sea or whatever. Well, th- I, I'm, I'm supposing here there was the two heads of two ugly twin brothers that would scare off gods or whatever. I'm just, that's speculation. That's not uh, 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 expositional research, Okay. But anyway, this ship had wintered there at the island where they were. And in verse 12, and landing at Syracuse, not New York. Uh, this is some 90 miles away from the island where they left. We stayed three days. From there, we circled around. In other words, Luke says, we were out at sea again. And the wind is working against us. And so we're kind of got tacking against the wind. We weren't going straight to Rome. But because of the wind, he says, we're kind of circling around, circling around. But we're making our way there through tacking, which is a nautical uh, procedure to, to kind of work against the contrary wind. And for, for there, we circled around and reached uh, Regium. And, uh, one, and after one day, the, the south wind blew, and the next we came to uh, Petolia. And uh, there, uh, I want you to see in verse 14, Luke says, Where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. Isn't that amazing? Every, it seems like everywhere Paul goes, Paul is coming into contact with, with fellow Christians. And this is God's providence again. You see, all along the way, Paul is allow, uh, God is allowing Paul to be encouraged by fellow believers. But what a testimony. Where did those Christians come from? How is it that, that Paul is journeying all the way from Jerusalem, and along the way, he's running in to believers in Jesus Christ? I want you to know something. They were probably the products of Paul's ministry. Because Christians were being dispersed from Jerusalem and Paul was preaching the gospel as he went on all of his missionary journeys. We saw him go from Jerusalem into Asia Minor, into Europe and, and all of that region. And Christians were being uh, convert, uh, people were being converted to Christianity and they were scattering throughout the known world. And Paul ran into some there in Petolia. And so there they, they were able to fellowship with them. Again, this is the courtesy that the Roman centurion was given to Paul. Given freedom to leave and, and, uh, and to be able to fellowship with other Christians. In verse 15, from there 
when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as the as Appia Forum and three inns. And, and this is, they're, they're now in Italy and they're making their way by land to Rome. But the word is out. The word has gotten ahead of, of, the, of the company uh, to the Christians in Rome that the Apostle Paul, he's here. He's here. He's in, he's in Italy. He's, he's on his way. And so some of them travel as far as 45 miles out of Rome to meet Paul and to, and to see him and to greet him and to encourage him. And, and look at verse, verse 15. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. And what an encouragement it was. You know, Paul could have been traveling along those roads and met no one that showed any semblance of the Christian faith, but instead God was sending a trickle of believers all along to greet Him and saying, Welcome, Paul. We've been waiting for you. Praise the Lord. How encouraging that was and uplifting to, to Paul. And he gave praise to the Lord and it encouraged him. In verse 16, Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the, the, the prisoners uh, to the captain of the guard. But Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. That's interesting. Because as we look at Paul's ministry there in Rome, you'll see that Paul was afforded certain, certain privileges. We saw that before in Caesarea. Instead of being put in a cold jail cell, Paul was allowed to live in a house. Of course, he was under guard. And Paul was always under guard of one Roman soldier that was there, right there with him uh, all the time. But still, he could have company. We'll see that happen because Paul is now beginning his ministry to the Christian or to the Jews there in Rome. You know, and as as I move into this passage here, as we look at this part of Paul's ministry beginning in verse 17, I want to remind you what Paul said, and he's so true. This is Paul's missions modus operandi. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Greek or the Gentile. And you know, that was Paul's practice, his modus operandi, all through his ministry. He always began with the Jews. You see, Paul wasn't an enemy of Judaism. He wasn't an enemy of, of the law and the prophets. He wasn't an enemy of the Jews. He was a Jew. And as he described in, in other portions of his writings, he says, I was a Jew of Jews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And so naturally, Paul begins his ministry with sharing the gospel with the Jews. He took full advantage of the privileges that were extended to him. Look with me in verse 17. And it came to pass after these days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, you see how he's making that connection? Though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. It makes it almost parallel to the experiences of Christ, who was delivered into the hands of the Romans by the Jews. Verse 18, Who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me know because there was no... Uh, there was no cause for them putting me to death. In other words, Paul says, he's making it clear to the Jews. Listen, I come to you. I'm not a condemned man. I'm under arrest, no doubt about it. I'm a, I'm a prisoner of the Romans. But even the Roman rulers have said that there's no just reason to put this man to death. There's no, no evidence to support what the Jews or Jewish leaders of Jerusalem were wanting to do. And that was put him to death. Look at verse 19. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal, uh, to appeal to Caesar. 
Not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. Paul said, listen, it's not me against Jews. It's not me against Judaism. It's not me against Israel. I'm one of you. But the reason that I'm here is simply because of the leaders in Jerusalem who wanted to see me dead. As we look now in verse 20, For this reason, therefore, I have called you, called for you to see you and speak with you, because of, for the hope of Israel, I am bound with these, this chain. Paul is basically saying, he says, listen, you, the reason I'm in chains is not because I'm a criminal. The reason that I'm under arrest is not because I'm a, a, I'm a, a, a wanted person out there against the Roman Empire. It's not because I've done anything against Israel. He says the reason I'm in chains is because I have been proclaiming about the very hope of Israel. The hope of Israel was the Messiah. The hope of all of Israel through the generations was that one day God would send His appointed Messiah who would deliver His people. And Paul says, that's why I'm in chains. Simply because I've been preaching what the Word of God, the prophets have said about the blessed Messiah. And of course, he was speaking of Jesus Christ. Paul says, that's the only reason I'm seen guilty. In verse 21, And they said to him, We neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. It's interesting. They hounded Paul all through Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, they hounded Paul all the way to Caesarea twice. They sent a delegation up there with false charges so as to see if they could have Paul put to death. Listen, they hounded Paul until he left the region. And I think it's interesting in contrast now, the Jews of Rome have very little knowledge about Paul. They have very little, little knowledge about why the Jewish leaders. They said to, to Paul, well, you know what? They've not sent any letters to us. They've not uh, sent uh, you know, a delegation to us and said, when Paul gets to Rome, you know, execute him or do, do this. They said, we haven't heard anything, really. Even the people that have traveled from Jerusalem. So it's almost as if the, the, the rulers of the, the Jews in Jerusalem, once Paul is out of their hair... And on his way to Rome, they almost lose interest in the case. Look at verse 22. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, speaking of Christianity, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. They do know about Christianity. They do know about the church. They do know that it is common knowledge among the Jews that you don't like these Christians because they're undermining Judaism. So we know that much. In verse 23, so when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law and Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Paul is pouring his heart into his people He's sharing with them everything. He's taking advantage of this privilege that he has. He's not in a cold jail cell. He's not cut off from, from his fan, uh, friends. He has access in this house. He can invite anybody that he wants. He can have, in fact, he's got all the Jewish leaders, and I don't know how many that was, but all of them there in Rome were able to pack into that house. And for a whole day, Paul preached solidly the, the Word of God, the law, the prophets, and, and the predictions of the Messiah. He preached Jesus to them all day long. And beginning in verse 24, we see 
their response is tragically predictable. Isn't that so sad? Here Paul has traveled all this way, poured his heart into this message strictly based on the teachings of the prophets and demonstrated from the life and ministry, the death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the blessed Messiah. And he's pouring his heart out. But just as we saw in chapter 14, verse 4, chapter 17, verses 4 and 5, chapter 18, verse 6 and 8, chapter 19, 8 and 9, only a remnant. This is the pattern. Only a remnant of the Jews would choose to believe. The vast majority of them would reject their Messiah. How heartbreaking this was to Paul. He came to deliver to them the good news, not the bad news. He came to deliver them the sure way to salvation, the fulfillment of the blessed hope. Oh, you can imagine. It'd be like taking a, a, a gift that you had sought after to give to somebody that you truly love and, and, and value, and you've looked all over, and you finally found the perfect gift, and you're all excited, and you go to the party, and you give the gift to them, and they take a look at it, and they push it aside. Paul was given more than just a tangible gift, brothers and sisters. He was offering for them on behalf of God the gift of salvation, the very gift of eternal life. And yet, many of them would reject that. In verse 24, And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers. And this is the passage that Pastor Tim was reading out of our worship guide in our confession and pardon time out of Isaiah. Paul knew exactly what to say to them. He knew exactly the word of God to bring to them. In their moment of spiritual blindness, in their moment of spiritual deafness, Paul reminded them of the, of the words of, a, of a, a revered prophet of old Isaiah. In chapter 6 verse 9, he says these words. He says, go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people has grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their heart and turn so that I should heal them. God knew for ages, for generations, for centuries. God knew from the beginning of the dawning of time that He would have a people who He called His own people who would because of the sin in their lives and the rebellion and the rejection, they would become spiritually blind. Even when they had the very evidence of the fulfillment of the Scripture, the Son of God hanging on a cross and then buried and then resurrected before their eyes, they still wouldn't see it. Even with the great preaching of Stephen and Peter and Paul preaching the Gospel, they still wouldn't hear it. And when Paul recited those words from Isaiah, ladies and gentlemen, all of the Jewish leaders knew exactly where he was coming from and knew exactly the intent in these passages. Isn't it sad to think about the state of the nation of Israel today? 
vast majority of the residents of that land today that we call the Holy Land, Israel, they don't know the Messiah. In fact, the majority of the people who are residents of, uh, and, and citizens of Israel aren't even Orthodox practicing Jews. They're secular Jews. Jews by name. One of the hardest places in the world to evangelize is in Israel. Well, I take that back probably the United States. But isn't it sad? Doesn't it break your heart to think how many, how many crusades has Dr. Billy Graham, the evangelist of our generation, preached from all the corners of the earth? How many millions of people in person, by radio, by television, have heard the clear preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And now even his son, Franklin, again, carried on the mantle of preaching the gospel to countless thousands of people. And yet, how many times have people seen the evidence, heard the message, and across this nation have turned deafened ears? How many Sundays after Sunday after Sunday have well-meaning pastors preached the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, poured their heart in expounding the word of God so that lost, wretched sinners would hear the truth and the light of the gospel would shine into their hearts and their lives would be changed and they would turn their back on sin and choose by faith to follow Jesus Christ because they're convinced that He is indeed the Son of God and the resurrected Savior. And how many times, Sunday after Sunday, do these same people who have heard but they never really understand. They've seen it. They've looked into the Word of God. They see the pages. They see the words. And time after time, they still don't see it. This same Dr. Billy Graham said he is absolutely convinced that the vast majority of people sitting in American churches today are absolutely lost, unregenerate, and bound for hell. Folks, that's tragic. And that's exactly the circumstances Paul was facing right there. I was visiting with a fellow that I've known for, goodness, over 20 years. Visiting in his home time after time, known very clearly that he's lost. On my way over to visit with him, God just impressed upon my heart because he gets discouraging sometimes. I've taken tracks. I've offered to talk to him. I offered to share with him time after time how he could be saved and come to know Jesus. And God just said, do it again. <laughs> and so I looked for an opportune moment in my visit with him and I began to share with him as clearly and plainly as I possibly could what it meant to be saved. Who God was and what sin was and how all are sin, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Shared with him that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross, was resurrected to pay the price for his sins and my sins and told him that God had simply extended to us a free gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. All you do is reach out by genuine faith and receive this gift of, of salvation And I could look in his eyes. I could tell. 
There was no receptivity whatsoever. After I had poured my heart out into the sharing of the gospel and given him an opportunity to respond, his words basically was, Charlie, thank you. And then he went on to talk about something else. People's eyes are still blinded. People's hearts are still hardened. Their ears are still deaf to the truth of the gospel. But dear brothers and sisters, take a cue from the Apostle Paul. Don't stop sharing. Don't, don't stop. Even with the rejection of the Jews, I want you to see what Paul did. He turned his attention to the Gentiles. The Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Look at verse 28. Therefore, he let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear. And they did hear. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and they had a great dispute among themselves. I imagine they were arguing over, you know, who some believed and some didn't and, and on and on. In verse 30, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Let me ask you something. Do you think Paul got discouraged? Do you think Paul was having a pity party? Do you think Paul just threw in the towel and said, Hey, I, I, I'm so tired of the Jews rejecting the message of the gospel. I'm done. I don't want any more to do with this. Oh, no. He just went to plan B. And he realized just what he, he had been told, fulfilling his, 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 his original call as an apostle. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, where, Paul, where God said to Paul through Ananias, He says, this man, speaking of Paul, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. Paul knew that God had a call on his life and his call was to share the gospel. If the Jews reject it, then Paul says, I'll share it with the Gentiles. And I don't know about you, but I say, praise God. I'm so thankful that the message went on out beyond the Jews to those of us who are Gentiles. But not only fulfilling the, the apostles' call, but also we see that in sharing the good news of the gospel with the Gentiles, Paul was fulfilling in his own way the, the, the great commission of the Lord Jesus. When Jesus says, you know, uh, in, in Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, not just the nation of Israel, but Samaria, and Macedonia, and Italy, and on. Take it out to the world. And Paul was doing just that. Paul's sharing the good news of the gospel with the Gentiles was a fulfillment of the Lord's last command to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where we began a year and a half ago when the Lord, just before his ascension, told his disciples, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Paul wasn't among that group that stood there with the Lord, but I guarantee you he heard that word as if it was spoken directly to him. And that's exactly what Paul was doing. And that's exactly what we must do. But you'll notice that Luke ends the, 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 the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostle, chapter 28, almost abruptly. It's almost as if the focus is not on Paul. Guess what? It's not. The book of Acts is the story of the church. The story of the gospel. It's the story of God, the, the high and mighty God, through His Son Jesus Christ, by the power of His Holy Spirit, taking the good message of the gospel out to the world. 
And Luke is in essence saying, by the way he concludes the book of Acts, hey, guess what, folks? The story ain't over. He takes the focus off of Paul and puts it back on where it belongs, and it's on the sharing of the gospel. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, church, do you realize we are a part of the story? One day it may be all compiled in heaven and there will be a, a chapter that will give reference to Cornerstone Baptist Church or whichever church you are a member of. Listen, listen, you are part of the story. And the story is not over. Now I think it's interesting because there's theories about, well, what happened to Paul? What happened to this great, powerful missionary of the gospel? Some scholars have said that after two years he was, of course, taken before the emperor, and he was executed. But then other scholars, and I, I, like to, I tend to lean towards what Dr. John MacArthur, in his commentary on this subject, offered. He said that it was a known fact that in Roman law, in the tradition, that there was a two-year statute of limitation. If, if a prisoner had no accusers to bring the case before Caesar after two years, they were free. We just saw evidence that the, the, the Jews in Rome said, hey, guess what? We haven't heard anything from Jerusalem. There's no delegation. There's nobody here to press Paul's case. There's nobody. And, and you know, Rome in all of its glory with their high regard for legal tradition, they didn't look too favorably at frivolous cases. And you see Paul had come all the way up. Both governors and even the king Agrippa had said, there's no evidence. There's no reason to execute this man. So Dr. MacArthur suggests, and I tend to, to lean in that direction, that Paul was freed. from This was his first imprisonment in Rome. And over in chapter 15 of Romans, if you were to go over there and look, you'll see that Paul talks about in verse 28. He talks to the Romans. He, listened, he said, I'm going to come to you, but I have plans to go to Spain. Rome was not Paul's final destination. It was a passing through. And so those who are of the mind that Paul was released suggest that Paul probably went on from Rome to Spain and shared the gospel there. And then about five or six years later, he was arrested. And this is under the Emperor Nero, who's known to be a deranged madman, who was absolutely obsessed with the persecution of Christians. And he was seeking out to get all those that, that stood out as the head of the church. And of course Paul would be one of the primary targets. And so that tradition would suggest, and then early church tradition, some of the early fathers have, have, have made, written letters that would support this, that Paul was finally arrested under Nero in the second imprisonment. Very different from the first imprisonment. Because in the first imprisonment, Paul is in a house. He's comfortable. He has freedom. He has guests. In the second imprisonment, we get glimpses of it. If you go to Paul's last, one of his last writings in 2 Timothy, his letter to his protege, Timothy, Paul's talking about being in prison, but he's not talking about freedom. He's talking about being in a jail cell. He's talking about harsh treatment. And Paul there in 2 Timothy you listen to the words of Paul as he's writing probably some of his last words. In this prison cell, under persecution of Nero, Paul is saying, he says in verse 6, chapter 4, 2 Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Paul knew at this point that he was coming to the conclusion of his life. God had impressed that upon him. And you say, and I thought about this, and I said, my goodness, that's not the ending that you want for a champion of the faith. Um, one of the greatest and strongest proponents of the gospel, a man who was a, a vowed persecutor of the church. You're talking about a testimony, a man who breathed threats towards the church and wanted to kill Christians, and Jesus Christ arrested his heart, turned him around, filled him with the Spirit, and you've never seen since a more powerful proponent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is how his life ends. I heard a story about an elderly couple who had served the, the majority of their adult life on the mission field in Africa. A husband and wife. They were coming home having decided to retire as they were getting older and on a ship back in that day. And as chance would have it, aboard that same ship was then President Teddy Roosevelt who's known to be a big game hunter. And he was on that ship as they were making their way back to the harbor of New York. And as they got close to the harbor, of course, as protocol would have it, the president and his party always would deboard first and all the rest of the people would get off later. But anyway, as they were approaching the harbor, they, the elderly missionary couple were standing there all with other people on the, at the railings of the ship looking out to the harbor and they saw this massive crowd gathered. I mean complete with bands and banners welcoming home President Roosevelt with his big game, you know, uh, uh, trophies. And as the president deboarded from the boat down the gangplank, bands were playing, the people were cheering, the banners were waving. And as the elderly couple waited for their turn and of course the president he moves on with his procession and the bands leave the banners come down and the crowd withdraws that elderly saint of a missionary with tears in his eyes said to his wife isn't that something we've served all of our lives given for the Lord and bringing people to Christ. The president goes hunting and here's a big crowd for him. But this, we come home and there's nobody. And his sweet wife takes his hand and begins to pat his hand. She looks up lovingly in his eyes and she says, but honey, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. Faithful servants of God. Christians who have followed the Lord and dedicated your lives to sharing the gospel and being a witness for the Lord. And, and the rest of the worldly crowd gets all the accolades and the praises and you've sacrificed and you've given so much. Listen, i got good news for you. <laughs> this ain't home. 
Listen, Paul didn't get a great band and celebrations for him there in Rome. But I promise you, in the eyes of my spirit, when, when that axe fell and his, he was beheaded there outside of the city gates of Rome, and hey, listen, when his soul was escorted by angels into the glory and the splendor of heaven, I submit to you that there were bands playing. There were angels, armies of angels assembled, and the whole host of heaven were welcoming home the champion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And more importantly, he stood and he saw the very Savior who had died for his life, who had sacrificed for him and he looked into the eyes of his very precious Savior for whom he had proclaimed the gospel for years and he heard that Savior say, well done good and faithful servant. The story is not over. The book of Acts ends. But through every man, woman, teenager, a child that is out there in the midst of our society and world who dares to look to a friend or an acquaintance or a relative and say, can I tell you what Jesus Christ means to me and how you can know Him as your personal Lord and Savior? The story is still being written. Just make sure, just make sure that you're in the book. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's bow.